Good to be back again tonight, and uh, we're turning once more to Mark's Gospel, and the fourth chapter, please. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And we're commencing to read at verse number 30. Mark 4 and the 30th verse. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. And the same day when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? There we will end our reading, which we trust God's blessing will be upon as we consider it. Now, last week, when I was here, we looked at the first three parables of Mark chapter 4. That was the parables of the seed and the soils, the parable of the lamp, and the parable of unconscious growth. Tonight, we begin with the parable of the mustard seed. It is closely related to the (coughs) previous seed parables and is found in all the synoptic gospels. In the first parable, the seed is sown. In the third one, the seed is growing. And in this one, the seed has grown. The preceding parables regarding the seed, the one that we finished with last week, is the manner of growth internally. In this one, it is the extent of growth externally. And the Lord said in verse 31 that the mustard seed, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all seeds that are in the earth. Now, of course, the critics who are always quick to jump on the bandwagon have challenged this statement because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed known to botany. But the answer is, of course, a very simple one. 
It was the smallest seed common in the land of Israel. And yet, the smallest of all seeds can produce a growth greater than all herbs and shoots out great branches. Now, there are two opposite interpretations that have been given to this parable. One is that it represents the extension of Christianity, which, although starting from small beginnings, finally spreads over the whole world. That sounds very plausible. The other is more suited to the context. It shows that the growth of the mustard seed represents the abnormal development of profession of professing Christendom. The birds are the key to the interpretation. Because if they represent the evil activities of Satan in the first parable, then they must do likewise here in order to be consistent with the Lord's clue to understanding all parables. He taught his disciples that a knowledge of the first parable was essential in understanding all parables. Verse 13. The birds which removed the seed in the first parable were satanic agencies and are now seen in this parable of the mustard tree lodging in the branches of the tree and perhaps the branches of the tree might possibly be taken to be the various branches of Christendom which are around us in abundance. The final expression of Christendom is of course the scarlet woman of Revelation chapters 17 and 18. It takes the form of the great whore of Babylon, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And if you look up Strong's Concordance or W.E. Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words, the Greek word for whore or harlot is the same in both cases. One who yields herself to defilement for the sake of gain. And you know, we could think in particular of the Church of Rome, which is one of the richest systems, maybe the richest system, on the face of the earth, and has gained much through false doctrines, false teachings, and making merchandise of men. It just comes to my mind that someone whose name escapes me at the moment, it might have been Thomas Aquinas, I'm not sure, but someone visited one of the popes of Rome on one occasion. And the pope, he was showing him round all the grandeur of the Vatican and all the wealth that had been accumulated. And he made this comment, he says, you see, unlike Peter, we no longer have to say silver and gold have we none. And the person to whom he spoke replied with the answer, no, and neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Metaphorically, I believe that the scarlet woman of Revelation 17 and 18 
represents for us the church of Rome and her apostate daughters, Babylon the Great. Said in Revelation 18.2 to be a habitation of demons, a hold of every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. Now you remember when we studied the subject of the millennium, we said that literal Babylon, when fallen in the future, will be the prison house of demons and fallen angels. But spiritually today Christendom, represented by the scarlet woman, represented here by the mustard seed, is where many of these evil personalities are lodging. Bringing to bear upon multitudes their false corrupting doctrines. Blind leaders of the blind who will not themselves enter into the kingdom and would hinder those that would. As the end of the age approaches, their activities will get greater. And 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. I think of one example which was Henry J. Newman, once a contemporary of J.N. Darby, who threw overboard everything with regard to New Testament Christianity as we know it, joined the Church of Rome and became Cardinal Newman, a high-ranking member of that church. He wrote a hymn which greatly lacks assurance. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. He seemed to be in a darkness, in a fog, in a mist, in a confusion. These birds are the false teachers often mentioned in the epistles. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 says that there were false prophets also among the people. That's the Old Testament people. And if you read carefully in that particular chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll find the doctrines that they hold are described as damnable heresies, denial of the Lord, pernicious ways, causing the truth to be evil spoken of. You not see it on every hand today when all kinds of things are being passed off as Christianity. Recently in England, in, I think it was an Anglican church, if I'm not mistaken, the communion table was spread with the flag of the gay pride movement. These are the sort of days in which we are living. Through covetousness, they use false words, making merchandise of men's souls. And the so-called TV evangelists by the majority on the God channel fall into that category. Now, there are some glorious exceptions, but they're few and far between. 
those who are involved with the false word of life movement and prosperity gospel are to be avoided at all costs. I could mention names like Joyce Meyer, Creeflo Dollar, Jerry DePlantis, Kenneth Copeland, Garner Ted Armstrong, and many more all false teachers. Jesse DePlantis had the audacity to say on television, and I heard it with my own ears, I would never have believed it, that when God has a problem and he doesn't know how to solve it, he consults Jesse DuPlantis for the answer. That is the ridiculous sort of thing that is going about today, which if it were not so serious would actually be laughable. Joyce Meyer believes that Christ did not obtain redemption at the cross, but that when he died he ascended into hell where the demons abused him and beat him and tormented him and he was wounded by them there for our transgressions and overcome them, contrary totally to the New Testament teaching. Creeflo Duller believes that when a person gets saved, they automatically become many gods. And Kenneth Copeland has the nerve to say that he has the authority from God to control the weather. I wish he would come over here. Maybe we could get rid of the snow that's supposed to be coming. Many more we could mention, but they're all false teachers. 2 Peter 2, verse 3 to 9, their destruction is declared. Their damnation slumbereth not. Verse 10 to 12, their doings are described. They walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, presumptuous, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And that word dignities can be translated the glorious things of God. In other words, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And as I say, they're around us on every hand, making great use of religion and religious leaders to deceive men. Chapter 2 of Mark well describes this as we see the opposition of religious leaders to the perfect servant and the service of Christ. However, the work of God goes on and if God be for us, who can be against us? Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. God is at work. But the overall message of this parable is beware of imitation. Because you can be sure that where God works, the devil will do a counterfeit work. Verse 33 to 34, Mark knew many of the Lord's parables. But these are recorded under inspiration and were suitable to the gospel of Jehovah's perfect servant, the wondrous Son of God. If you were reading in John 20 and verse 30, John speaks of many other things which the Son accomplished and which John did not record. But those things written by John and here by Mark were sufficient for faith to say of the servant, he hath done all things well, and to say of the Son, my Lord and my God. 
In verse 34, Mark speaks of his disciples. That's Christ's disciples. But the RV translates it, his own disciples, thus bringing out the intimacy between Christ and those who are his. You get the idea in John 13, 1, having loved his own, which were in the world. The poet said, I am his and he is mine. Now at verse 35 to 5.43, we come to another group of four. And the series of four, as we have already seen, is very prominent in Mark's Gospel. Having begun with 4.35 in this chapter, we see four miracles of power. Mark is now coming toward the close of the first section of his gospel and he ends it as he began with four miracles. These miracles all have something in common in that all are extreme cases beyond the hope or help of mankind. The stilling of the storm, verse 36 to 41. This is a hopeless case for even experienced fishermen were afraid. The result was the question, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The man with the legion of demons, chapter 5, verse 1 to 20, another hopeless case, as no man could tame him. The result, all men did marvel, 5.20. And then we have the woman with the issue of blood, a desperate case. She spent all she had, and she was nothing bettered. In fact, she was actually getting worse. The result from the lips of Christ was go in peace and be whole of thy plague. The raising of the dead daughter of Jairus. Death is beyond any human help. But the result is that the damsel arose and walked. Now, if you read these miracles carefully, you will find that there seems to be a comparison to four stories that are recorded in Psalm 107, in which people in extreme conditions called upon the name of the Lord and were delivered. The first miracle in Mark 4 is that of the disciples in the ship, in a terrible storm, calling upon the Lord, Master, carest thou not? that we perish. The last narrative of Psalm 107 is about a sinking ship in a fierce storm when the seamen are at their wit's end and they call upon the name of the Lord and they are delivered. Second miracle here affects the demoniac who was chained and bound but who called upon the Lord and was delivered and this is similar to the second section of Psalm 107 concerning prisoners who were bound in affliction and iron but who called upon God and were set free. The third miracle in this section of Mark's Gospel concerns the woman with the issue of blood who touched the Lord's garment and obtained healing. The third section of Psalm 107 we have those in dreadful sickness and disease calling upon the name of the Lord 
and it says he sent his word and healed them. The fourth miracle concerns the young girl lying dead, who was taken by the hand of the Lord and led out of death into life. Relating to the first section of Psalm 107, many people lost in an unknown land are led by the right way to a place of habitation. It could well be, as Mark wrote under inspiration, he may have had the four sections of Psalm 107 in mind as he recorded these four miracles which are now before us. And then again we can compare these miracles with those of chapters 1 and 2. There can be no doubt that the bringing, that in bringing this first section to a close, Mark is led to record miracles similar to those with which the book opens. It's beautiful to note how they are in perfect order. The first with the first, the second with the second, and so on. The first miracle in chapter 1 is the man with the unclean spirit. In chapter 4, the storm. In both cases, the Lord rebukes. First the unclean spirit, then the wind. The rebuke is strong. And there's a word used in the context of demonology. Both were acts of Satan. Both were rebuked by power. In the second miracle of each series, we have a woman with a fever and the, and the man with the legion of demons. One characteristic of fever is restlessness. And that is also the key feature of the demoniac. He was day and night in the tombs, crying, cutting himself with stones. He was a self-harming, poor, restless individual. Both cases end with service. The woman arose and ministered unto all in the house. The delivered man was a living testimony to the Lord. In the miracle of the leper and the woman with the issue of blood, Numbers chapter 5 tells us, that they were both to be put outside the camp. The Spirit of God inspired Mark to position these two miracles accordingly as they presented those rejected by God and men. Both were defiled, but the Lord met their need. The final miracle of each series is a man with the palsy and the dead daughter of Jairus. In both cases, the victim was helpless. Palsy presented prevented movement, and death was the end of all movement. The thought of lying occurs in each. Mark speaks about the bed on which the sick man lay. The same is said of the young girl. The Lord came and entered in where the damsel was lying, five, verse 40. There are several other parallels of these miracles which would be profitable to consider, but perhaps in the interest of time, we will move on to this first miracle of power, the ship in the sea, 4, verse 35 to 41. This is one of Mark's special miracles, and he gives more detail than any of the other synoptic writers. He tells us that this event occurred when evening was come. It was therefore dark as well as stormy. To be in a ship in a fierce storm in daylight is fearful, much more so in the dark. 
I remember coming over from Scotland one Saturday night late. We ran into a storm in the Irish Sea. And everything was flying about everywhere. And we were instructed not on any condition to get out of our seats. And all I could think about was the sinking of the Princess Victoria on the same route. Fearful thought. Of course, I'm sure I have mentioned here before that there are three kinds of storms recorded in the Bible. There's the Lord's storm in the book of Jonah. It was for the purpose of bringing back the runaway prophet. <coughs> then there's the natural storm when Paul was on the ship going to Rome. But this storm here in Mark chapter 4, this was the devil's storm for the purpose of hindering the Lord and the work of the Lord from delivering the demoniac, the prisoner of Satan on the other shore. But you see, we read that the Lord Jesus was sleeping in the hinder part of the boat. Of course, that's significant because that's where the rudder was. Others had ministered to his comfort in the journey and had provided him with a pillow for to rest upon. And although physically he was asleep after a very busy day, he was still in control of the whole situation. The waves beat upon the ship, showing the seriousness of the situation, and the disciples wakening him up uttered the words, Carest thou not that we perish, exposing their lack of knowledge of the Lord's compassion. Jesus arising rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. You know, it's possible to get so far down in the storms of life that sometimes you feel like the psalmist who said, no man cared for my soul. And that's a deep, dark place to be in. Let us never in the darkest hour imagine that the Lord is indifferent to our situations. Because 1 Peter 5 and 7 says that he careth for you. Does Jesus care when my way is dark, with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into dark night shades, does he care enough to be near? Oh yes, he cares, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Saviour cares. Peter said, casting all your care upon him. For he careth for you. You'll excuse another personal reference, but I remember when I was recently in hospital. After I collapsed on the Sunday morning and had to be literally carried into the open ward, or wheeled in maybe, I found myself at one point in the next couple of days in a very dark place, wondering what the next result was going to be, and with conflicting opinions, not sure, not sure what the diagnosis was going to be. And I was led to think about Jonah, who sank right down to the bars of the earth, but God brought him back up. 
And the only word I could focus on in those dark hours was the word peace. And this passage that we have read came to mind where Jesus said, Peace be still. My mind went back to one of Hedley Murphy's crusades, a time of great blessing in Carrie Duff. And the lovely little hymn that was sung by the Castlereagh Male Voice Choir, it was the first time I had ever heard it. Master, the tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. The sky is overshadowed with blackness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep? When each moment, each moment is threatening a grave in the angry deep. The winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace be still, peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons or men or whatever they be, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace, peace, be still. That for me was a turning point in my hospital experience. And I'm thankful to have come out the other side, still waiting, mind you, for a couple of... uh, scans and their results will dictate the future and your prayers will be appreciated for that. But as Mark says, I I encountered a great calm. A calm in my soul which I can only attribute to the peace of God that passeth all understanding. You see, someone said rightly that with Christ in the vessel, We can smile at the storm as we go sailing home. You know, there are two things that the Lord does with believers when they are in troubled waters. Stormy waters. Sometimes he calms the storm for the believer as he did here in Mark 4. Sometimes he allows the storm to rage on a bit, but he calms the believer in the storm And although it continues, the believer can say, as Paul did in stormy waters, but I believe God. Tremendous statement. No matter what comes against us, no matter what opposition we face, no matter what days of darkness or difficulty, we can lift our hearts by faith and look to him on heaven's throne and say, but I believe God. We've sung it tonight, haven't we? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth a living just because he lives. Perhaps if one thing more than another has come out of my recent illness, it was a new emphasis perhaps on the fact of living one day at a time and trusting in the Lord for things future and praising God for things past. Now notice the Lord's instruction as they prepared to set seal. He said in verse number 45, let us pass over onto the other side. They were never going to go under, you know. The plan of God was that they would go over. Perhaps it would remind us of Isaiah 43 and 2, 
When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. The believer is not going under. The believer is going through and going over with God. When the storm came, they should have had confidence, knowing that they were in the will of God, and yet while being in the will of God, they were subject to the opposition of the enemy. Remember the story of Job, a man of whom God said there's none like him in all the earth, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet a satanic wind came up from the wilderness, smote the four corners of the house, and it fell, and all his children were dead. You see, if a person lives carelessly, carnally, the devil won't give him much bother. But when that person is surrendered to the will of God, they will discover that the devil is indeed alive and well on planet Earth. This was a dark night after a busy day and the storm came upon them adding to the darkness. Such experiences are permitted by the Lord to test his servants. But as Paul discovered 2 Corinthians twelve nineteen, that in every circumstance the Lord's grace is always sufficient. Mark notes the extreme conditions in that the, uh, verse 37, that the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. You know, the disciples missed it here. The ship was now full, but it was still floating. That was a miracle in itself. Why was it still floating? Because Christ was on board. And again, as I said earlier, we're taken to Psalm 107, where the seamen in a wild sea were at what the Bible calls their wit's end. I remember back in 1970, when I was seeking the mind and will of God for my life and getting severe opposition from the most unexpected of sources. The late Willie Wills, missionary to Venezuela, knowing nothing of my inward struggles, gave me a little card with a poem on it entitled Wits End Corner. It was a message from God to my heart and I still have the little card to this very day. It says, are you standing at Wits End Corner? Christian with troubled brow, are you thinking of what is before you and all you are bearing now? Does all the world seem against you and you in the battle alone? Remember at Wits End Corner, it's just where God's power is shown. Are you standing at Wits End Corner? Then you're just in the very spot to learn the wondrous resources of him who faileth not. No doubt to a brighter pathway, your footsteps will soon be moved. But only at Wits End Corner is the God who is able proved. You know, even if the ship had perished and gone down, there was no possibility of the disciples perishing. For the Lord who in another tempest walked upon the water could have caused that he so desired that the whole lot of them could have walked on the water to safety. No doubt when the Lord rebuked the elements, he was rebuking the demons who were responsible for the tempest. In verse 40, 
we see that the disciples were filled with fear and panic. Thus they missed the opportunity to display faith. The fact that they awoke the Lord indicates their fear. Had they been full of faith, they would just have let him sleep. Recently they had seen a leper cleansed, a paralytic made whole, Peter's mother-in-law healed. And yet they didn't seem to really get it. They didn't grasp it. And so in verse 40, the Lord reprimands him saying, Why are you so fearful? How is it you have no faith? Notice there are three statements. They called the Lord master or teacher. That indicated a lack of knowledge of his person. They said, carest thou not? Lack of knowledge of his love. We perish. Lack of knowledge of his power. And when the wind ceased, the Bible says there was a great calm. The outcome was a reverential fear of the person who was in their midst. And the marvel at the power of the creator and sustainer of the universe. Who with a single word calmed the winds and calmed the waves. They said, what manner of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They could see now that even the very universe was under his control. And so it is with us today as believers. We have the assurance that the one who holds the world in place in peace and place holds our lives in the hollow of his hand. I love that little gospel song so beautifully sung by the late Elvis Presley. You may ask me how I know my God is real. You may doubt the things I say and doubt the way I feel. But I know he's real today, he's real to me. I can feel his hand in mine. That's all I need to know. Hedley Murphy talked about the master's hand upon mastered man. We can trust him in all of life's afflictions, for he cares and he's able. He's got the whole world in his hands. He makes the rose the object of his care. He guides the eagle through the pathless air. And surely he remembers me. My heavenly father watches over me. I trust in God wherever I may be. Upon the land or on the raging sea. Where though billows roll, he keeps my soul. My heavenly Father watches over me. The Bible says that there's not a sparrow falls to the ground, but what the Lord knows about it. And the Lord Jesus said, How much more value are you than many sparrows? So valuable that Christ shed his blood and gave his life for our salvation. And nothing will come upon us or against us unless he permits it. And if he does, we can be sure that he will be with us in the midst of every storm and every difficulty. In Psalm 107, verse 30, it says of the storm-tossed mariners that he bringeth them to their desired haven and they praise God for his goodness. One day when all of the storms of life are past, we too 
will be at home with the Lord in our desired haven, at rest and at peace. There's a little hymn, I was brought up in the Gospel hymn book, and there's a little hymn in the Gospel hymn book which says, Land ahead its trees are waving, O'er the hills of fadeless green, And the living waters laving shores where white-robed forms are seen. Now we're safe from all temptations, All the storms of life are past, Praise the rock of our salvation, we are safe at home at last. Rocks and storms we'll fear no more, when on that eternal shore, drop the anchor for the sail, safe at home within the veil. That's our hope, our prospect and our assurance, and we trust in him at all times, for our times are in his hand. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee that we can come to Thee in every situation and we know that Thou dost hear our prayers because we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee we are accepted in the Beloved One. We give Thee thanks for all Thy blessings and all Thy goodness to us. How good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend. We thank thee, our Father, that we trust thee. We thank thee for all that has passed and trust thee for all that's to come. We pray that thou will bless thy word to us tonight. May it indeed encourage our hearts. We take a moment again to remember Davy and May. We commit them to thee and ask that thy good hand of healing might be upon them and that soon they will be able to be out amongst us once again. Grant thy blessing, our Father, to this end, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's sing our closing hymn, please. In Redemption Songs, it's number 426. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith 